This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. All right, everybody, welcome to the session after lunch. Um, uh, it's suitable to have this uh, session after lunch because you will, in retrospect, review what you had for lunch. Um, and uh, how much time you spent at the little dessert table and how much sugar you put in your coffee, etc., etc. Uh, and hopefully you, you don't feel too guilty about that. Um, I, uh, I'm not going to do much by way of introduction. Um, the, the speakers will each give uh, a, a brief introduction to themselves. For me, uh, choosing to sponsor and chair this session uh, was a, a very easy decision. Uh, it's a fascinating topic. Um, I was chatting to Professor Noakes a bit earlier, and uh, I mean, the stuff I've read that he's published, particularly Challenging Beliefs, and if you haven't read any of his stuff, I would encourage you to start there, because it, it makes you that sort of, gives you that skepticism around science, and, and question everything you read, don't take it at face value, um, that uh, should be valuable, even in our, in our profession. Um, so uh, I'm, not, I'm not really not going to waste any time. Without further ado, I'm going to hand over straight to Sarah. Are you starting? Okay, great. Please welcome them all to the stage. Thanks, Barry, and good afternoon. Globally, there are an estimated 1 billion people living with diabetes, and this compares to 40 million people living with HIV globally. In South Africa, an estimated 3.5 million people suffer from diabetes, and a further 5 million from prediabetes. This compares to just under 8 million um, living with HIV in South Africa. So globally, diabetes overshadows HIV completely, and in South Africa, diabetes and prediabetes have now overtaken HIV. And we saw that in the previous session on NCDs, uh, where it's shown that NCDs will, um, will worsen and far, far overtake HIV going forward. Today, we're going to be talking about diabetes and a high road for South Africa in which diabetes is reversed. My journey started on this when we observed reversals in our data, and we saw chronic di diabetics register for chronic medication, but no longer taking their, medica their medication, their insulin. And we traced some of those patients back to Dr. Neville's practice. Um, but in, in September last year, I contacted Tim to co-present at the IIA conference in April on diabetes reversal. It's been a steep learning curve for me, and I'm very grateful to the experts on this topic, including my co-presenters, for everything that I've learned. Tim and I share a passion for diabetes reversal, having both lost a parent to diabetes. Um, I lost my mum nine years ago to diabetes, and um, Tim lost his father uh, to diabetes. All right. So to, in to introduce the speakers, um, I should have got a roving mic so I could move around. <laughs> um, so, Professor Tim Noakes should be known to you all. Um, he's an A1 rated scientist and he's always challenged beliefs and he's written a number of books uh, that I'm sure you're familiar with. He's been very influential in promoting the low-carb, high-fat diet, which is colloquially referred to as the Tim Noakes diet in South Africa. However, what you may not know is that Tim has paid a price for his unconventional beliefs having been called before the Health Professions Council of South Africa after a complaint about his recommendations. The trial started in June 2015, and over the next three years it involved 28 days in court. Tim and his legal team put the low-carb diet on trial to prove there's no evidence that the diet is dangerous. In the end, they won and set a legal precedent. Going forward, no one can be charged with recommending a low-carb diet on the grounds that it's unconventional and unsafe. So this legal precedent paves the way for a new model in clinical practice that could improve quality of life and longevity. Uh, Dr. Neville Wellington is a Cape Town-based uh, family practitioner who specializes in diabetes. Um, he's frequently on the radio um, talking about what diabetics should and shouldn't eat. Um, and yeah, um, yeah, and in, in order to achieve widespread reversal of diabetes, we need more doctors like um, Dr. Dr. Neville. Um, in terms of my um, short resume, I just wanted to add that I work for MedScheme and we have about 
250,000 diabetics under management. All right, so just to get things started, and um, uh, if you can just uh, get out your cell phones, my cell phone was here. Um, get out your cell phones and go onto the convention app, and hopefully the uh, question will come up. So the question is, how many people do you know with diabetes? Uh, number one, I don't know anyone with diabetes. Number two, at least one person. Number three, two people. Question four, three people, and five is five or more people. So if we can answer, and then in a, in a if the app's working, in a, in a second we'll we'll get the responses up on screen. All right. Okay, so um, just let the results settle for a second. All right, so less than 10%, uh, oh, still, still very variable, but 10% don't know anyone with diabetes, so that's um, interesting. Uh, but, and then 13% know five people or more, um, but yeah, most people, 85% of people know at least one person with diabetes. Okay, so that's interesting. Okay, we've got 80 votes. All right, we've got a couple, of, couple more questions coming up later in the presentation, so this, this one is just getting you warmed up. So, um, all right, we've got 90, 97 votes, 98. All right, um, thank you for voting and, and keep your apps handy. We've got a couple of more questions coming up in um, Dr. Neville's session. Um, a bit later. All right, can we move on to the next slide? Okay. Um, so, I don't know if this has ever been done before at an actual convention, but we are, we are actually doing some testing today. Uh, we are testing, and Dr. Neville has kindly agreed to uh, do some finger prick text testing for us, and it's really out of solidarity with diabetics, many of whom have to uh, do the finger prick tests multiple times today, per day, four to six times per day. What we're going to be testing today is um, ketone levels, uh, which basically measures whether you, your body is, is burning fat or is it relying on the sugar and carbs that you eat. And then we're going to be doing a glucose levels test. Obviously, non-fasting, since it's just after lunch. Um, we do have, in terms of the personal um, information, Protection of Personal Information Act, we do have a consent form that you'll need to sign. But I'd like to invite you up. We, we've got a space for about 20 more people to be tested. Um, we have already um, had a great take-up of testing from the med scheme uh, people and also insight, uh, but we'd like to challenge some um, people from Discovery, from Momentum, from Council, and Dr. Neville's going to, uh, going to test your ketones and glucose, and we're going to share the results later. Okay, so please do um, quietly move to the table over here on my right, and, um, and we're going to share the results later. Okay, so while everyone is coming up, and we can only accommodate 20 people, um, but thanks for that. Um, in terms of today, I'm going to start by setting the scene. I'm going to cover some of the material we covered in April at the IA conference, um, but some new material as well. We're then going to talk about knowing your status and understanding insulin resistance. Um, we're going to talk about key triggers for change. I'm going to start and then hand over to Tim um, halfway through, and then... Tim will set out the vision for a future high road scenario, and then, uh, then we'll hand over to Dr. Neville Wellington, who's going to talk about practically how we're going to get there in terms of um, his experience as, a, as a, a GP treating diabetics. Right. Okay. So in terms of the typical diabetes member journey, um, some see diabetes as irreversible. You see the maroon line. Once a person is diagnosed with diabetes, they're on a slippery slope to a rapidly deteriorating health status. It's a one-way transition probability model. Diabetics are impaired lives, subject to stringent underwriting due to increased morbidity and mortality risk. At MedScheme, what we do is we intervene as a managed care organization, and we work together with treating doctors to change the trajectory of disease pro progression. We provide health coaching and encourage high-risk beneficiaries to improve their lifestyle, visit their doctor regularly, and take their medication as prescribed. However, the evidence that we presented at the IA convention in April this year showed that diabetes can be reversed. The dotted line shows that health status can be improved if diabetes is reversed or in remission. 
So we're, so we're talking about the high road scenario um, regarding diabetes reversal in terms of widespread reversal across South Africa. And the other roads um, lead to obesity and lead to um, hypertension and many other diseases so the, so and increased costs. So we really want to take the high road. Okay, so in terms of setting the scene, um, it's critical that we understand um, the, the key responses to macronutrients. And this is the the principle behind low-carb, high-fat. I mean, our body has very different responses to different macronutrients. Carbohydrates tend to spike our blood sugar. Fat has very little impact on blood sugar and blood insulin levels. And protein is somewhere in the middle. And so the idea is we want diabetics to be eating less carbohydrates uh, to avoid the um, blood sugar spikes. Okay, so one new thing since April is the American Diabetes Association has published new guidelines relating to medical nutrition therapy for diabetics. And um, here, for the first time, we find low-carb, high-fat included as a possible treatment regime. Um, unfortunately, the SEMSTA guidelines here in South Africa have not yet changed, um, but we see this as a very positive step. And just to um, let you know exactly what it says, it says nutrition therapy has an integral role in overall diabetes management. In addition, research indicates that low-carb eating plans may result in improved glycemia and have the potential to reduce antihyperglycemic medications for individuals with type 2 diabetes. In terms of the references, there are three references, but we um, focused on the, the Halberg paper, and this relates... Oh, Line for testing. This relates to the, what we call the Verta Health Study. Verta Health is a, uh, an organization in a, um, it's kind of a health tech company in the US, and their ambitious goal is to reverse diabetes in 100 million um, people in, um, by the year 2025. So, very ambitious goal, and they've um, started um, people on the, on they've started treating people with low carb, high fat, and they've started publishing results. The year one study, um, came out late in December 2017. There were 262 enrolled in the, kind of in the um, treatment group, the continuous care intervention, and 87 in the usual care um, group, which was kind of the control group. After one year, patients in the continuous care intervention lowered their HbA1c from 7.6 to 6.3%. They lost 12% of their body weight and reduced um, diabetic medicine use, and we see 94% of patients who prescribe insulin and this is type 2 diabetics, reduced or stopped their insulin use. Uh, participants in the usual care group um, had no changes to those uh, measures. Um, interestingly, compliance to low-carb, high-fat was monitored by measuring ketones, which is what we're doing today. So ketone is, ketone is how you can measure if someone's complying to a low-carb, high-fat diet. All right, so what's it, what has happened since um, our presentation in April, they have um, published their year two results and about 75% of patients remained enrolled um, after two years, and um, very positive results. I mean, there's a lack of evidence on long-term impact of low-carb, high-fat. So the, the year two study is significant in that it's, um, it's a longer term. And comparing it to the three alternatives, uh, the, three, the three alternative methods achieving diabetes reversal, one is bariatric surgery, and the other is a very low-calorie diet, and the other is low-carb, high-fat. And um, the low-carb, high-fat compares very well to bariatric surgery. It actually outperforms bariatric surgery after two years. And a very low-calorie um, diet is not sustainable. It can be kept up for a maximum of three to six months. And, and this, all of this is in the paper if you want to read about it. Okay, very quickly, uh, I wanted to talk about reversal and remission. Um, we kind of use them interchangeably, but the way the, the Verta Health paper defines it is that um, reversal is where HbA1c, um, which is a long-term measure of blood glucose, is, is sustained below 6.5%, but with, um, with metformin. Um, remission is um, that 6.5%, below 6.5% is achieved, um, but without any diabetic medication. And the complete remission in the, in the very dark blue um, segment is um, achieving an HbA1c of below 5.7%. Okay, and um, very interestingly for us, as a managed care company, they, they actually measured 36 pathology measures. Um, it would be amazing if we had 36 um, pathologies for all of our diabetics. 
Um, and, but you know, I mean, just a huge variety of measures, and they saw improvements in most of the measures, apart from LDL, where they saw a slight increase. Um, in terms of the other, you can see the ketones, the beta-hydroxybutyrate, it's the ketones that we're testing today, and that tests compliance on the diet. So yeah, it's a very interesting paper I'd recommend for anyone to read it. Okay, so um, in terms of know your status, uh, 20 years ago there was a big drive for everyone to know their HIV status. I think it's still ongoing um, that people should be aware of their HIV status and be tested um, uh, frequently. Um, at the time, um, ARV drugs were a, a new and controversial treatment in South Africa. Um, but with the benefit of hindsight, we now know how much ARVs have improved quality of life and longevity. Um, so in the same way, currently, um, I know it's a pharmacological versus non-pharmacological but um, comparison, but, but in the same way, treating insulin resistance with low-carb, high-fat is currently controversial. Um, but I do think as actuaries, we need to engage with it um, just as we did with the, with the antiretrovirals all those years ago. Um, so in terms of how you know your status on the insulin resistance continuum, um, one, is, one, way, one way of knowing is your HbA1c. If your HbA1c is greater than 6.5, um, then you are um, diabetic. Um, and, and diabetics, we know, are carbohydrate intolerant. Um, so, yeah, so HbA1c is an easy, an easy way to know um, if you're diabetic and if you're insulin resistant, but actually it's a lot more complex, like, a lot more complex than that, and I'm going to leave it to Tim to explain this in, in uh, more clinical detail. Um, ideally, every person, should know their, um, every person should know their status on the insulin resistance continuum, as there are consequences of being insulin resistant and consuming high levels of carbohydrates. So if everyone knew their status, they would be able to adjust their, their diet accordingly, but not everyone knows their um, insulin resistance status. Um, I wanted to touch on something that Sarah Harper raised yesterday. Uh, she's from the University of Oxford, and she was talking about um, longevity, and she said, supercentenarians displayed an exceptionally healthy aging phenotype, where clinically apparent major chronic diseases and disabilities were markedly delayed, often beyond age, 100, age 100. They had little clinical history of cardiovascular disease and reported no history of cancer or diabetes. But now interestingly, our long-lived cases also had metabolic profiles that suggested higher insulin sensitivity at younger ages, and namely, namely lower waist to hip ratio, lower glucose levels, and lower insulin. Okay, so I thought that was very interesting, linking um, insulin sensitivity. So people on the right-hand side of the spectrum uh, you are likely to live longer. All right, so six, I'm six slides away from handing over to Tim, and what I'd like to do on those um, six slides is talk about some of our data that we're um, observing amongst diabetics at MedScheme. The first one, I'd like to read a recent tweet by Tim Noakes, and Tim is still very active on Twitter. And this is a tweet that he, um, he, he uh, that came out a few days ago. He says, and he was talking about the end stages of, of, um, of diabetes, and actually he was talking about um, his father. And what he said is, it perhaps begins with a heart attack, or maybe stroke. Then eyesight begins to fail, as do kidneys, leading to blindness and chronic kidney failure, requiring dialysis three times per week. Then gangrene develops in toes of one foot requiring amputation, followed by other leg. Death follows within 12 months. So there we can see that we've picked up on four of these conditions. We've picked up on the cardiovascular disease, we've picked up on the, the retinopathy or the, the eyesight, and we've picked up on the, renal, the chronic renal failure and also the lower limb amputation. Um, in my case, in my, in my mother's case, um, it was dementia that was the comorbidity. And, the, and I have a particular interest in, in dementia. Um, and it was very interesting to see the stats by Sarah Harper yesterday that um, diabetes really shouldn't occur in, in patients aged 50. Uh, and she, she had dementia and diabetes in her 50s. Um, so I, I really do think there is a link. In terms of the, the, what the statistics are telling us, um, we've done some risk adjustments. After the risk adjustment, a diabetic 
is um, almost 10 times more likely, likely to have lower limb amputation, eight times more likely to have retinopathy, um, five, or nearly six times more likely to have chronic renal failure, um, three times more likely to have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, two and a half times more likely to have cardiovascular disease, and 1.3 times more likely to have dementia. Uh, also, they, we, look, we tested the relationship between HbA1c and, um, and prevalence of these conditions, and they, there was a definite um, correlation uh, between HbA1c and lower limb amputation and retinopathy. The others were less clear, but we'll continue to, to monitor. So our HbA1c data is, is um, we only have a limited history of HbA1c data. Okay, so um, how healthy is our medical scheme population? So we can see here that um, approximately 75% of our diabetics have HbA1c's of above 6.5%. And um, yeah, the, the high HbA1c's are a concern for me. Evidence presented in Tim Noakes' book, Law of Nutrition, states that a 1% increase in HbA1c increases the risk of death by 21%, increases the risk of microvascular complications by 37%, and increases the risk of amputation by 43%. So we don't want to run HbA1c um, too high in, in our diabetic population. Okay, looking at triglycerides. Um, now we, we look at the lipid profiles of our patients. We look at HDL, LDLs, total cholesterol, but we don't always look at triglycerides, but these are um, very important. And um, I'm going to leave my clinical coll colleagues to talk more about that um, in, in a minute. Um, but just to say that 44% are... Um, above 1.7. Ideally, according to Dr. Neville, we want uh, trigs below uh, 1. Okay, they're looking at prevalence, and this is um, uh, just one of our uh, larger schemes that we've chosen here. And, and here the uh, prevalence increased from 3.9% in January 2013 to 5.9% um, in August 2019. That's an, an annual increase of 7%, which is um, also very concerning. And then um, mapping that onto costs, those, well, we looked at the 5.9% registered on chronic. We also um, have identified another 1.4% who are, uh, we identified from the care, having a care plan or from claims data, or from hospital admissions, et cetera. And those 7.3% those, um, uh, uh, account for 227 of costs. So the more the prevalence increases, the more, the more higher the proportion of costs uh, relating to diabetics. Already it's almost a quarter of a scheme's costs um, uh, relate to diabetic costs, relate to di diabetics for all causes. All right, and our last slide um, talks about chronic medicine spend, and this shows the breakdown for type 2 um, medicines. Um, typically, uh, a quarter of total chronic medicine spend goes, uh, goes on di diabetes medication. That doesn't take into account the comorbidities as well. And um, I think what, what Tim's going to be talking about later in terms of a future scenario, we want to dramatically reduce the insulin um, in this group, in the type 1 group. We want, we'd ideally like to get rid of those sulfonurias and other non-insulin uh, non medicines. Metformin is okay. And we'd like to see more of a spend on diabetic consumables because we'd like people to be testing more often. All right, so I'm going to hand over to Tim to talk about why we are in trouble. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. Uh, I must compliment Sarah on what she's achieved in the last year or two, that she really does understand the issues. And it's astonishing that someone without a medical training can have understood that. But I guess. Actuaries are clever people, so they can understand these things. So now, because you're all so clever, I want you to, for a moment, to understand my talk, you have to park a whole lot of information that you have. So for the last 60-odd years, there's been a, a scam has been developed on all the world, and it is that cholesterol causes heart disease. So if you have that belief that cholesterol causes heart disease, please for the next half hour, just, just park it and listen to what I say. And assume you've just landed from Mars, you've never heard about heart disease, you don't know nothing about cholesterol, and you just want to pick up the truth. So I went to court, as Sarah said, because I, I fight for the truth. And in the end, the trial was quite an epic event, and we wrote a book about it. 
And I challenge you to read this book and then to tell me that cholesterol causes heart disease. Don't read it, that's fine, and believe cholesterol causes heart disease. But if you honestly believe and you want to know the truth, please read the book. Because it's critical. Because what's happened is that you, you come in here with a belief that the reason why you get heart disease is you get fat and you eat too much fat and then you have, you have, your cholesterol goes up and then you have heart disease. There is zero proof for that statement. Zero proof. And the evidence is that when we try to manipulate your cholesterol, nothing happens. You won't have heard that. You won't have heard that from your cardiologist. But read the book and read the evidence. It is astonishing how it has been distorted. Okay, so now let's hope you've arrived from Mars, you know nothing about cholesterol, and this is your first lecture you're ever going to hear about what's causing the problems of ill health in South Africa and elsewhere. So the first point I make is that we in medicine treat you as in different categories. So we put you in a different silo. So if you have heart arterial disease, then you'll go and see perhaps a cardiologist. But the real cause of arterial disease is type 2 diabetes, which you've never been told. If you have arterial disease, if you had a heart attack, you have diabetes until the diagnosis is excluded. Or you have obesity, or you have hyper and you go and see an obesity expert, or you have high blood pressure, or you have dementia, or you have the real abnormal blood lipid levels, which is this thing, and you'll notice that you don't really see cholesterol listed there, because cholesterol's not the factor. It will come back to what it is, but it's hyperinsulinemia and this condition called insulin resistance. Now, please understand this. All those conditions are exactly the same disease exactly the same disease, and the cause is the same, and the mechanism is the same, or the basic mechanism is the same. Now, what do you do as actuaries? You treat them as separate diseases, and we treat them ineffectually, as I'll show you. So, the underlying cause that is not recognized is insulin resistance. It is not taught in one medical school in the world. This is the most prevalent condition in the world. It's reckoned that 88% of North Americans suffer from insulin resistance. 88%. And we don't teach it in the medical schools, and we don't screen for it. So, if you're insulin sensitive, you're going to have a long life, and you're not going to get sick, and you'll be on the far right. If, like me, you are insulin resistant, you will sit on the left side, and unless you do something about it, by the age of 40 or 50, you will start to pick up any or of these conditions, insulin resistance, hypertension, obesity, etc. That is the only thing that can happen to you. So you might develop cancer and wonder, gosh, where did this cancer come from? Actually, it was the insulin resistance and the high insulin levels that you kept going for 40 or 50 years that caused the problem, or the same with dementia. So that's the problem. So how do we detect whether or not you're insulin resistant? There are many ways. And the one that we talk about today is measuring your HbA1c, which is your glycated hemoglobin. You probably all know what your cholesterol is. It is utterly hopeless to know what your cholesterol is. It means nothing unless it's very low. Then you're at real risk. But there's a paper out this week in the British Medical Journal saying high cholesterol people live longer than anyone else. And low cholesterol is the real risk. So you have to ask, how is it possible that we're only discovering this in 2019? But I can assure you that knowing your cholesterol is of no value to you whatsoever. Knowing your HbA1c is critical. So if it's 4.5, you're going to live forever. If it's 5.7, you are diabetic. Your doctor will not tell you you're diabetic because we don't allow to make a diagnosis until the value is 6.5. But if you're 4.7, in five years' time, you'll be 6.5 and you will have type 2 diabetes. So that's the pattern. And each of you need to understand exactly where you fit. Now, this is from, from my colleagues in New Zealand, who, by the way, coach the All Blacks and do their fitness, and that's why they're a pretty fit team, because they don't eat much carbohydrate. I'll <laughs> come back to that. So this is all the conditions that are linked to insulin resistance. In other words, I can give you references in the medical literature for every single one of these conditions linked to insulin resistance. That is medicine. 
That is medicine. We used to say that in the old days, in the 1930s, if you wanted to understand medicine, you had to understand syphilis. Today, if you want to understand medicine, you have to understand insulin resistance. And again, we don't teach it in medical schools. So you have to ask, why? So here we go. So on the left, this is where the world you live in is the world on the left here. It's all the talk. It's obesity. It's because you eat too much and you don't exercise enough. Your cholesterol is too high. You're eating too much saturated fat and you need statins. And that is nonsense. Because that's what your, the issue is. It's the insulin resistance, which is the elephant in the room. It's insulin resistance, high insulin levels all the time, high blood triglyceride levels, as we were shown, Sarah showed you, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is becoming endemic. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is people with insulin resistance eating lots of sugar and high-carbohydrate diets. So, uh, Sarah spoke about the reversal of type 2 diabetes. Now, you may never have seen anyone who reversed their type 2 diabetes until today. And I stand in front of you as someone who reversed their type 2 diabetes. Why did I get type 2 diabetes? Because my dad died from it. I come from the north of England where diabetes is pretty prevalent. I came from a family with a long history of diabetes. The fact that my father had type 2 diabetes meant I'm at a tenfold greater risk. If you have a parent or an uncle or an aunt with diabetes, you're at tenfold greater risk. And many of you will have that and you won't have been warned about it. I then ran 70 marathons because I was told if you run, you can eat what you like and you'll live forever. And my diabetes got worse and worse and worse until it became apparent 10 years ago. My dad died 10 years after the diagnosis. So I knew I had 10 years to sort out the problem or else I would be dead. So I'm living on borrowed time. I'm in front of you on borrowed time. I should be dead. And I'm not dead because I put my diabetes in reversal, in remission. So there, if you've never seen anyone, it took me eight years of eating almost no carbohydrates in the diet and lots of exercise, etc. I'm now 70. My dad got the disease when he was 68. He died at 78. Okay, so I am evidence that it can happen. So let's look at the data in the literature for reversal of diabetes. The first reports of reversal are actually in 1920 in the literature, but they're difficult to interpret. What happened in 1921 and 22 was insulin was discovered. And the person who was working on reversing diabetes in old age type 2 diabetics said it was the worst thing that ever happened to nutrition, the discovery of insulin. Because as soon as insulin came along, all the type 2 diabetics were treated with, uh, with insulin and they were allowed to increase their carbohydrate intake. And he discovered that reducing your carbohydrate intake might be able to reverse diabetes. So that's in the literature in 1920. But it's forgotten. We move on then to 1979. And Dr. Simpson is a vegetarian and he wants to prove that a vegetarian diet can reverse diabetes. He reports this paper in The Lancet in 1979, the red lines. And you'll see, remember where we want the HbA1c, we want it to be below 6.5. So these people are severely diabetic. They go on this diet for some months, uh, for 11 weeks, uh, there we go. Essentially nothing happens. That's not reversal, nowhere, nowhere close. Then Dr. Barnard, who is a vegan and promotes the vegan movement and will tell you that a vegan diet reverses type 2 diabetes, even though his own data disprove it, he shows in the, the blue, the yellow, so the orangey color, that's a vegan diet, and he compared that to the diabetes diet of the American Diabetes Association, which is in blue. And you will see that over 74 weeks, nothing happens. So the vegan diet doesn't work and the diabetes diet doesn't work. Then in 2005, in the sort of off yellow color, Dr. Yancey, who is influenced by Dr. Atkins, and you'll all remember Dr. Atkins was the guy who treated people with high fat diets. He tested a group 
and they reduced their HbA1c from 7.5 down to below 6.5. And so they, some of them have reversed their disease. And then the Verta Health Study, which, which uh, we've just heard about, reduced the, reduced the HbA1c below 6.5 for almost 114 weeks. So this is true remission of the majority of patients on the trial. So that is, shows that there's clear evidence that diabetes is a disease that is reversible. And the people can no longer tell you that diabetes is not reversible. So quickly, why did we get into this trouble? We got into the problem because in 1977, the dietary guidelines were changed. And the moment those dietary guidelines were changed, they increased our carbohydrate consumption and took fat out of the diet. They're the lipophobic dietary guidelines. We hate fat. And that's what happened. So the, the obesity rates went from 15% to 34% of the United States. And if you eat a high-carbohydrate diet and you're insulin-resistant, it takes 20 years to get diabetes. So the diabetes epidemic takes off 20 years after the dietary guidelines change. And you can see it went from 2% to 8% of the U.S. population are diabetic, and it's going. And this will not change. It will not change until we reverse the the, the eating behaviors of these people. I must make the point that diabetes is a behavioral disorder. It's a disease of behavior. And unless you change behavior, you cannot reverse it. You can take all the pills in, like, in, the, in the world that you like. It's not going to reverse the disease unless you change your behavior. So what happened was the dietary guidelines in 1977, which were purely commercially driven, they had no scientific basis whatsoever, none at all, they were speculative. They said, maybe this will make people healthier. And we were told to start eating bread, cereals, rice, and pasta, 6 to 11 servings per day. This is what you learned for matric. If you didn't put this in your matric class, you didn't pass matric. You then eat fruit, fruit group and then fats, oils, and sweets sparingly. The only problem is this has got no makes no biological sense because we have been eating those foods for two to three million years. Our whole digestion is based on meat because we have this incredibly expensive brain. It's an energy expensive brain. It needs those very nutrient dense foods to keep it going. When do you think vegetables were first discovered? When do you think fruit was first discovered? Two to 12,000 years ago. And the fruit that you are eating was not available even 100 years ago. Fruit is purely sweets. That's all it is. It is a treat. It has no proven benefit. None at all. Even vegetables have got not, in clinical trials, have yet to prove benefit. And this, the cereals and grains, 12,000 years ago. So that's the problem. We're not designed to eat those foods. So... This is the, the key slide for you to understand. If you take someone who's insulin-sensitive and non-diabetic, you give them a modern industrial diet, this is what happens. Now, how do we treat that? We give medications. But the cause is the diet. You can't treat the, the cause. You can't get rid of the cause by using medications. So the treatment is that. The problem is if you do that, you put six or seven pharmaceutical companies out of business and they're not going to allow it to happen. But we have to work, make sure that it does happen, because this is the truth. And this is what we prescribe you should eat. It's simple. You cut out the bread, the pasta, the sugar, the corn, the beans, and the rice, and you eat those foods in the middle. And I went to court because apparently this diet will kill you. Those foods are going to kill you. I don't know if you appreciate that. Someone made the joke the other day that if you tell someone to go to McDonald's and eat the burger, the, the patty, the, the chips and the coke, that's a fantastic diet. But once you take away the bread and the potatoes and the, and the coke, it suddenly becomes a diet that's going to kill you because it hasn't got no carbohydrates in it. That's what we have. So that was the diet that humans became human on. Okay, so here I want to suggest to you what we have to aim for. On the basis of the Verta Health diet, dietary evidence, we know that 90% of type 2 diabetics should be off insulin. They shouldn't be using insulin, and 60% of type 2 diabetics should be reversed or in remission, and 30% should be controlled on metformin only. And I use metformin, and the cost to me is 100 rand a month, I think. The metformin is very cheap. 
Government private sector should unite to make nutritious, sugar-free, carb-free foods more widely available. And we have to understand that this, this is the most addictive drug on the planet. Okay? And industry wants your children to be addicted from the age of six months. Because that's when you start feeding the cereals, which are full of sugar. So we take a poor infant, feed it sugar, six months, it's gone. The addiction has started. Widespread behavior change through consistent messaging, diabetic self-management, education and support, and creating an enabling environment. But we can't do that until we acknowledge that the pro what the problem is and what the core cure is. And if we keep caught Sorry, if we keep talking about you're lazy, you get fat, blah, 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 you eat too much, your cholesterol goes up, got to get rid of that. Everyone, the high road scenario, everyone will know their status. Sorry, there we go. Everyone will know their status when it comes to insulin resistance in exactly the same way that everyone will know their HIV status. Only those who do not have insulin resistance can eat carbohydrates and I don't agree with sugar, but they can eat carbohydrates freely. We need to train doctors, specialists, and dietitians will be aligned in dietary advice given to those with insulin resistance. The dietary guidelines are driven by the, by the big food industry. They control the dietetics associations globally, and they were involved in my trial. Just remember that. And LCHF will be recognized as the generally accepted treatment regime in South Africa as recognized by the American Di Diabetes Association guidelines. So we then need to make that the National Health Insurance Fund and medical schemes will facilitate widespread behavior change, it's behavior change, through alternative reimbursement models and active disease risk management. We have to reward people for actually eating the right foods and controlling their insulin resistance. Prevalence of chronic disease measured by those registered for chronic medications will reduce, not only for diabetics, but for all the other conditions caused by insulin resistance. And it's about 85% of all chronic diseases. 85% linked to insulin resistance. So there we go. And so society and big business will support those with insulin resistance by making sugar and carbohydrates less ubiquitous. So, what our goal is to get the HbA1c below 6.5 or ideally below 5.7. We need to get triglyceride levels below 1.7 or preferably below 1. And those are two values you need to remember. And diabetic admissions will be substantially reduced through proper administration of the disease. Here are Sarah's data from her insured population. And this shows the HbA1c distribution. Sorry, I'm getting there. This is the HbA1 distribution. What you need to know is that if your HbA1c is 6.7, 6.9, which is kind of just where the curve is, your risk of heart disease is doubled, okay? If it's at 10, the risk of heart disease is tenfold greater. Now go and ask your cardiologist what your, if your cholesterol is doubled, what's the, what your increased risk is. It's essentially negligible. Here, by increasing your HbA1c, you get a real measure of what the increased risk is. And this is the curve that we want to see. We want to see everyone shifted to the left. And then you'll have a healthy nation once we get to that, that position. And I think so that. So there we go, high road scenario. LCHF will be accessible to South Africans from all cultural backgrounds and all income levels. The Department of Health's Healthy Lifestyle Campaign will provide dietary advice taking into account insulin resistance. And at the moment, they're not doing that. They're, they're absolutely not doing that, and that's the tragedy. Diet is not given proper. They said, well, eat more vegetables and more fruits, and that's going to make you healthy. No, that doesn't help insulin resistance at all. And finally, uh, we have a foundation which is not the wealthiest, but we try to make a difference and we've developed an Eat Better South Africa campaign where we can show people that eating for 30 rand a day, they can start to reverse their diabetes, their hypertension, their metabolic syndrome. So it's possible it can be done. Remarkably, no one wants to fund it. It's astonishing how this is the simple intervention, which we know has a huge effect 
is simply not being done. What we've learned is that the poorer communities in which we work, as soon as you tell them, this is the food you should be eating, and they notice the results and the benefits, they stick with it, and they understand. It's not difficult to get people to adopt this diet once they see the benefits. Thank you very much. I'm going to hand over back to Sarah at this stage. Oh, it's Sarah, yeah. Right, thanks, thanks very much, Tim. I'm going to invite my um, colleague, Farai, to come and uh, provide an independent assessment of the testing. And that's before, yeah, please get, um, just needs to get his computer. And um, before we invite Dr. Neville up. So, Farai, over to you. Thanks, everyone. The, the results are in. We had very, very good active uh, participation. We had 29 people who, we actually ran out of kits. So I think we probably could have taken a couple more people if people showed up. Uh, so the glucose levels are made to understand uh, the, the normal range is generally between 3.8 to about 6. Uh, I sort of just kind of rounded it up. So the minimum glucose level we had was 3.8. The maximum was 7.9. Um, and I think there's, uh, Dr. Neville will kind of explain the context of, you know, pre-meal, post-meal, so I'll just give you the summary there. And the average was 5.4. Uh, with the ketone levels, they range from zero as the minimum. The maximum was 0 0.8, and the average was 0 0.2. Uh, if I look at specifically sort of putting them into bands, uh, we sort of took under four as below normal for glucose. So there were two out of 29 who were below normal, 21 who were within the normal range, and about six, and six who were above normal. With the ketone levels, the highest number out of the 29, 15, had a ketone level of 0 0.1. Uh, the highest one, 0 0.8, uh, and a couple of people at 0 0.5. So, I'll definitely post a picture of some of these on the app just so that you guys can, I know the visual will definitely help because uh, I don't think everyone has a good memory as myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll hand over to Dr. Neville. Thanks. All right, thank you everyone and thank you to the brave participants or victims of my testing. I. Um, yeah, so just to explain just a little bit of context quickly. So for most patients, we're trying to get their glucose levels before meals below, four, below 6 and after meals below 7.8. So most of you were fine. One, one or two people, I think, ended up above 7. Maybe you've eaten something uh, more rich in carbs. I think there were some people who had some fruit juice who were a bit higher, some people who had a, a bit of bread and, and uh, some pudding and that with it. But other than that, you, I can reassure you, none of you are diabetic. So... Well done. All right. So I hope I'm doing this right. The, I just want to say thank you to Sarah for inviting us up here. We really appreciate it, and she's really worked hard to get us up here. And uh, also to thank you to the commitment to, that she's shown us um, in, in this work that we've been doing. All right. So my brief is to just explain a little bit about insulin resistance. Prof alluded to that, and so is Sarah. I'm going to also talk about how it's defined, a little bit about what causes it, and then how do we overcome it, because obviously we want to, that's actually really what we're wanting to try and prevent. So what is insulin resistance? This is in fact a term that was originally coined by Dr. Gerald Raven, who was honored by the ADA, uh, which is the American Diabetes Association, to present the Banting Lecture in 1988, in which he described how hyperinsulinemia, specifically in response to a glucose challenge, uh, actually drove a cluster of components which constituted the syndrome. And he initially, initially called it Syndrome X, and thereafter it became known as Metabolic Syndrome. And I'm going to actually define the components a little bit later for you so that you understand it. Essentially, what Dr. Raven showed was that if you gave people not yet known to be diabetic, so maybe some of you had slightly higher glucose levels you'd want to do this, a 75-gram glucose tolerance test and there would be a wide-ranging insulin response, which is what you can see on the left here. So the glucose levels actually were essentially all the same, but the insulin responses were, were different. The lowest insulin response, is this pointer? Okay, sorry, it doesn't look like it's working. Um, 
on the, just to the left, you'll see insulin levels. The lowest insulin response is actually a normal response. But if your insulin levels go higher and higher, it becomes more abnormal. And in fact, those patients start to show the components of the metabolic syndrome. Now, Joseph Kraft took it a little bit further. He, he used actually 100 grams of, of glucose, and he tested over 14,000 patients and looked at their insulin responses. So it's insulin response over about five hours. And he defined a normal pattern, which is the bar graph, is actually normal. And then three abnormal patterns, which he showed predicted actually type 2 diabetes. And then the one very, very low insulin response is actually type 1 diabetes. You obviously don't have any um, insulin. So further researchers have actually looked at these patterns and followed up the patients over about 10 years. And you can have, see the, the top is the insulin patterns, low is the glucose, which is similar. And you can see where the insulin levels are higher, the patterns actually are the insulin-resistant patterns. And in fact, in table 4, pattern 4, if you look down pattern four, about 47.8% of patients over 10 years eventually became diabetic. So this was predictive of patients becoming diabetic. So when we talk about knowing your status, this is what we're trying to tell, tell people. Okay, but to be honest, to go through a five-hour insulin tolerance test is actually quite cumbersome, and frankly, it's, it's also quite expensive. So the International Diabetes Federation actually felt that in fact, there could be a better way to do this. And eventually, after much debate, they came up with the fact that you could actually just measure your belly. Okay? And the, the, the logic goes like this. Insulin, high insulin levels, it's an anabolic hormone. It grows things, so it grows fat in the belly. And if you just measured that, you'd get an idea of what your insulin levels were. So, in fact, it's very cheap. You just take a, a tape measure. And uh, so while they, they included the other four components that Gerald Raven had included in his research, they found that if the abdominal circumference was 94 centimeters or above in men, or 80 centimeters in women, I can just imagine a lot of you are going to say, not going to be measuring, but anyway, um, you had one of the components of the insulin resistant uh, uh, syndrome. And then the next thing was elevated triglycerides, more than 1.7, a reduced HDL of less than 1 in, in uh, men and, and less than 1.3 in women, and then raised blood pressure and raised fasting glucose. Now, you can imagine that's actually quite simple to do because most of you do your lipograms or fasting glucose tests and you can work this out and you can know your status quite easily. So how is this actually used? If you have three out of five components, you're actually defined as having metabolic syndrome. So any three out of five. The problem with this is that it doesn't really mean much for future risk of disease and it's been difficult to define. So it's not been used that well in practice. However, we do know that if you have metabolic syndrome, you end up having about a two times increased risk of having heart disease and about a five times lifetime risk of getting diabetes. Now, obviously, many people feel just treat each component separately, which kind of plays into the hands of the pharmaceutical companies. But we know, and I'm going to show you on some patient studies just now, that actually if you just go follow a low-carb lifestyle, you can actually reverse all of these components without much cost. Anyway, I use it just to tell patients, you're insulin resistant, you're not diabetic yet, but actually you are going to become that eventually if you continue this trend, and it really helps them to be aware of their lifestyle changes. Okay, I'm going to jump quite quickly into what is the underlying cause of insulin resistance, which is actually a high-carbohydrate diet. So I'm going to go through a little bit of what I tell patients, which is to actually explain to them what are carbohydrates and how many grams in each um, in, in the food, just the commonly eaten foods that, they, that they're eating. Now, we know ultimately all carbohydrates become digested in your body to glucose, fructose, and galactose. Those are the three monosaccharides that are most important to our bodies. So knowing how many grams of carbohydrates in foods is really important for two reasons. The first is that all diabetes patients need to be aware of how many grams they're eating because obviously they're going to be testing and they're going to be seeing what, what they do and hopefully treating it as well. And the second reason I'm actually going to explain just now. So if you look at the slide, you can see a teaspoon of sugar is generally about 4.2 grams. Some people say 5 grams. A slice of bread gives you about 15 grams. A uh, plate of cereal, generally around about 30 grams. A glass of fruit juice, about 30 grams. A um, cup of cooked rice, or about 20 grams. Banana, about 30 grams. So if you start being aware and thinking about it yourself, how much you could be eating, it'd be interesting to know for yourself just how, 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 um, 
how, how far along you are on, on, on the trend of, of, of carbohydrates. And we'll, we'll show you just now just, just how much it takes to actually become a diabetic. So I don't know if we want to do the digivote. I'm worried we might run out of time. Um, but literally, you can work out for yourselves. I mean, a plate of cereal, six teaspoons of sugar in the morning, two slices of bread, another six teaspoons of sugar, a glass of fruit juice, another six teaspoons of sugar, a small yogurt, three teaspoons of sugar, and then sweets, cakes, whatever you're eating, you find that you get to 21 teaspoons actually quite easily, especially if you follow the supposed low-fat, healthy diet. So I don't know, do we do this, did you vote, or do we, shall we just let people just... Yeah, I think we're going to have to, sorry, move on. We were sort of wanting to kind of get an idea of what everybody's eating, but maybe just keep it in mind. Okay, so my second reason for trying to make people aware of the carbohydrate content is, is this. So in, in 1963, there was a doctor in Natal, George Campbell, who was following up Indian and Zulu patients and tracking their, their diet. He found that the urban Zulus, and I know we had a little talk about the, rurals, the rural population as well, um, in fact, ate less calories than the, than the rural uh, population at that time, but they had 16 times higher amounts of sugar. And he tracked their diet and had a look and said, and, and worked out that if they had about 32 to about 36 kilograms of sugar a year, in those years it was 70 pounds. And uh, he found that roughly if it, it took about 20 years on that load to become a diabetic. So you can think about it. So that's this in a year for 20 years. And that became a diabetic. And the, obviously, the, there's other gene, genetic factors that play a role in that. But you can begin to understand how easy it is to become diabetic. So just to show you, this is the sugar consumption in the, in the Americans over the last 200 years. And right from the early 1900s, they already started achieving about 70 pounds of sugar. And uh, so, so just to show it is, it is a problem around the world. South Africa at the moment, I think it's about 33 kilograms per person per, per year anyway. And then Tim um, referred to this graph, again, just showing that when the low-fat diets were really being promoted from the early 19, late 1970s, 1980s, and carbohydrate intake increased dramatically, literally within about 20 years, the diabetes epidemic started. So it confirmed what we already knew from the 1960s. Okay, so what this amounts to... Obviously, increased glucose levels, right? raise your glucose, raise insulin levels. In fact, part, part of it gets converted into fat. You get a fatty liver. The fatty liver becomes very insulin resistant. Um, you need to produce more insulin, which shows those glucose, those uh, insulin response curves to actually control your liver. And uh, at the same time, high glucose levels are actually damaging your pancreas. And, and the insulin-producing cells actually get damaged, so you start lowering the amount of insulin, and eventually you end up with diabetes. So it's a whole milieu of, of events that are taking place all the time. So, how do we overcome or reverse insulin resistance? Well, after all we've told you now, the logical thing is you need to reduce excessive amounts of carbohydrates. There are other studies that have shown that, in fact, you do this through um, bariatric surgery, that you lower the food intake total calories, and then lowering total calories just per se. And then we've also confirmed, Sarah's spoken quite a, quite a lot about the Virta Health studies, which have shown going on low-carb diets do the same thing. So we know that they, they, these low-carb diets also work. I mean, logically, all three diets or all three interventions actually do lower uh, carbohydrates. But to be frank, low-carbohydrate um, lifestyles are far more sustainable. Um, in the long run. Okay, I'm going to move on just to show you a couple of patients just to show you that, in fact, if you do do an intervention with low carb, you actually do make a difference to the metabolic syndrome and to the diabetes control. And I've, over the last eight years, nine years that I've been pushing this, basically come up with a little dictum, diabetes is reversed one meal at a time. And I'll show you what I mean by that when I, because I, I, I ask patients to actually go and test their glucose levels before and after every meal, which is why we were trying to do this now after the meal, maybe a little bit early after some of the meals, but your, your, your glucose levels were revealing. Okay, so just the first patient, in fact, one of the very early patients I saw who, who started uh, me on this, on this road, overweight patient on high levels of insulin, had a unusually normal um, HbA1c. I haven't seen it in many other patients. And uh, initially, this is when I saw him in July 2012, his glucose levels were not bad, but very variable all over the show. 
And at that stage, I was still talking about carb-insulin ratios and trying to get it right. He uh, managed to do a bit of that, still didn't quite get it right, but did a lot better. And then some friend at the bowling club actually told him about the drinking man's diet. Now, I don't know how many might remember the drinking man's diet, but it actually was a diet promoted in the 1960s, which promoted a low-carb diet. And he, so, so he went on to a kind of low-carb diet, and uh, that, that's what his glucose level started doing. So it showed you that he actually made a big difference to his, his variability and, the and, and his glucose levels. But what was important is tracking him six months later, was he lost weight, so one part of the metabolic syndrome, his total insulin usage went right down. His triglycerides came right down, which is part of the, the metabolic syndrome. And uh, his HDL levels and cholesterol levels hardly changed. But the HbA1c stayed the same. So for, for, for the same thing of, of, of um, for the same level of HbA1c, we're still able to, to reverse many of the other um, factors. This is just a lady I saw also in 2013, and she was very interesting because I diagnosed her at the time with diabetes with an HbA1c of 6.8. As, as Prof mentioned earlier, 6.5 is a cutoff. High, heavy, very overweight, 99, high triglycerides, on blood pressure medication. And she said to me, look, I've heard that you want to do low carb. I'm going to try it, but don't put me on medication yet. So I just tracked her for about a year and a bit, and you can see her weight came down quite dramatically. Blood pressure improved, and in fact, we ended up stopping her blood pressure medications. Her HbA1c levels came down. Fasting glucose levels didn't really shift as much as we'd like. Came down to 5.6 and then sort of stayed up. But her triglycerides responded dramatically. Again, showing that the metabolic syndrome was being reversed. And uh, yeah, the LDL, HDL didn't shift. Uh, HDL actually went up quite a bit. So again, just the features of the metabolic syndrome being changed. So it is possible. And then just a lo second last patient, this is a gentleman I saw more recently, uh, 58 years old, he'd been diabetic for three years when I saw him, he'd only been on metformin and came to see me because he was told that he needed to go on more medication, possibly even insulin because his HbA1c was high. So this is what I, I instruct patients to do. So I give them a sheet and I say to them, please test your glucose levels before you eat and an hour to an hour and a half after you eat. The reason for that is we've done some studies looking at where the peak of the glucose level is after you eat, and usually it's about an hour to an hour and a half. So we give every patient a, a, a monitor. We hope that the medical aides will pay for the test strips. Any hints out there? Um, and we start monitoring. And you can see this gentleman actually did incredibly well. And literally by the end of the week, his glucose levels were almost down to normal. Um, you can see 5.76. Fasting glucose levels still a bit high. But literally within a week, he's already achieving almost normal levels. And that's not putting him on any more medication. This is his chart three weeks later. Still see the morning readings are quite high, but through the day, and often we find that the, the reading before supper is actually the best reading, the sort of if they haven't been eating carbs in the day. That's what I try and encourage the, the patients to do. Every now and then he had some chips or something. He did spike 2.9 or soup plus 2. But basically it showed just how well you can do with this diet. This is, I, I download everybody's glucometers, I get them to test just to make sure that they've been doing correctly, and you can see how quickly he actually achieved um, normality. And literally by the end of three months, his HbA1c was 5.9%, which is a dramatic improvement. Not needing any more medication at all. And uh, he'd lost a bit of weight and was feeling really good. And just a quick last patient, just to, this is somebody I saw very recently, Actually, a diabetic patient who had been banting for a while, and that's his glucose chart up, up, up at the top there, actually was in fairly normal range. For some reason, and I'm not quite sure why, he ended up seeing a dietitian who said to him, look, you need to go on a low-fat diet for diabetes. You must eat more cereals, you must eat more bread, and you must eat more fruit. And that's what his glucose levels did. By the time he saw me, they were running in the 20s. So the low-fat diet really has been a problem. But unfortunately, the dietitians are not testing their, their own uh, advice. So thank you very much. That's just, uh, oh, I better conclude, yeah. Um, so high carb sugar, three, 35 kilograms per person per year for 20 years in susceptible people ultimately leads to diabetes. You can pick up the changes by doing the metabolic syndrome test. So all of you, if you've got access to it, go and, go and have a look at your, your own parameters. And we've talked about reversing with low carb diets. Thank you so much.
All right, I wanted to ask one final question, um, otherwise our, our slides will be on the, uh, we were not quite finished, but we'll put our slides up and you can read the rest of them. But the question I did want to ask um, in response is how involved should the profession be in diabetes and treatment like low-carb, high-fat? And yeah, firstly, steer clear. This is dangerous territory for actuaries. We don't want to end up in court like Tim Noakes. Um, this, sound, B is, this sounds interesting, but I need to know more. C, we need to be involved to some extent to, price, to design products price and reserve correctly. D, actuaries should be influencing behavior change in product design, modeling the epidemic. And E, actuaries should be actively campaigning the government to promote healthy eating. So um, I'd, like to, I'd be very interested to see the responses. And maybe to pose a question while the results are coming in, and um, maybe a question for Barry is, do we need, like we have uh, an HIV um, subcommittee, do we need an NCD subcommittee for us, or do we, you know, do we need a focused effort uh, looking at, um, at diseases like diabetes and modeling, and, and um, also what came up in the public interest session yesterday is uh, we need to be pu pushing more statistics out into the public and, and enabling um, government to make the right decisions, just like we did with the HIV committee in the 1990s. We were, we were very active. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that would be my suggestion, which we can maybe discuss, although we are very short on time. So, um, thank you very much for your, for your votes. I see 49 or 50% uh, say that actually should be influencing behavior change in product design and modeling the epidemic. And, and nearly 20% said we should be actively campaigning government to promote healthy eating. So that's very, very encouraging. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Um, Thanks, Sarah. Sorry. Thank you, everybody. Uh, let me fulfill my duty as chair of the session, uh, which I've done quite poorly, but I think uh, uh, only because it was so interesting, and say thank you very much. Please give them another round of applause. Um, we, 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 we're well over time. Um, you're well into your transition to the, the next phase, so I don't think there's going to be time for questions, but I'm sure um, the good doctors will, will stick around if you want to come and approach them afterwards just for a couple of minutes at least. I don't know what their travel plans are. Um, Sarah, that's a great question. I think uh, it's possibly the, the sort of epidemic of our, of our time now that we've sort of gotten to grips with HIV. Not that it's a problem solved, but lots more to do, but absolutely. I mean, I think there's, uh, Shivani and her team have already started doing some interesting work there, and I'm sure there'll be um, some more to do. Um, I've never felt uh, so guilty for reaching out for an endearment at a conference ever. <laughs> uh, Probably the first time I've not eaten the from the bowl of peppermints in front of me sitting next to the, the good uh, Professor Noakes. Thank you very much for, um, for, for all coming.